Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 to 14 and can be found in the church Bibles on page 1168. It's entitled Paul Accepted by the Apostles. Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and, meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from G James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow the Jewish customs? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Shall we begin by praying? Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you for the truths that we see through that word. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to understand more of you, more about your grace, more about you at work in our lives. Amen. So we're continuing our series on conflict this morning and concentrating specifically on how we can rely on God's grace as we do so. Now, those of you who are on Facebook may have seen pictures of the downstairs of my house uh, over this last couple of weeks, um, covered in dust and uh, not able to find where anything is. And uh, that's been a bit of a conflict, really, particularly when I've been 
trying to find time while trying to find a computer to write a sermon on. So uh, Friday, on my day off, I went into work and shut the office door so I could have some time on my own to prepare for this morning. Paul's account that we've just heard offers some key insights into the resolution of conflict. Dealing with conflict in a way that honors God and relies on his grace is vital, I believe, in mature relationships. Whether that's within the church or whether that's in other areas of our lives, with our family, with work colleagues, it's vital. Now, Justin Welby, who, as you know, is the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's had a career in conflict resolution before he was ordained. And he recently commented on the question of resolving conflicts. And he starts, it was part of one of his blogs, uh, by writing, speaking from his own experience about the damage that conflict can do. In a process of reconciliation, he writes, in which I was involved recently, one of the questions that people were asked, which is quite a standard one in circumstances where disputes are within churches, it was this. What has this dispute done to your soul? And he goes on, you could adapt the question to different sorts of disputes, not least by changing the word soul to spirit or inner self or something like that. But it's a very valid question. The impact of conflict is not only external, but deeply internal. It causes trauma and lasting damage, even when there's been no physical violence. And he continues, I remember for a long time a letter I received in the last few years from someone who'd gone through a particularly difficult conflict in the church. It was full of what can only be described as deep trauma and sorrow. It had been deeply damaging. Now in this passage we've just heard from, Paul offers us four key principles in our own approach to resolving conflict. The first one is, don't rush in. Trust God's timing. Paul emphasizes in this account, right at the start, doesn't he, that it's been, there's a 14-year gap between his two visits to Jerusalem. And he says that his visit is prompted by a revelation from God. Now, depending on which commentary you read, depending on which particular visit he's talking about, because there's three visits that he is talked about in Acts. But whatever the semantics of that, it's clear that Paul is acting on a revelation from God. And Paul does this quite a, quite a lot. Um, it's worth noting that he's in the habit of sharing whatever vision he's received with those around him and acting on it. You see it in Acts in Acts 16, where Paul receives a vision of the Macedonian begging him to come. And it says this, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once. There are times when we need to take the initiative to be reconciled. Jesus teaches on a couple of occasions in, in the Gospel of Matthew, and also Paul tells us in Ephesians that we are not to carry resentment from one day to the next. But there are other times when our desire to resolve conflict is actually driven by our own anxiety to put others right or to avoid a situation that we may find painful. 
The danger here, I believe, is that we think that God is not interested or as interested in resolving conflict as we are. And yet Paul reminds us in Corinthians, it is God who gave himself in Jesus to reconcile the world to himself. Now those of you who follow quick cricket and are as old as me will, will remember Jeff Boycott. Famously played everything with just a straight back, forward defensive, that was his way. Took about five days to get to 100. And this is really, forgive the metaphor, this is really what Paul's talking about here. He's playing it with a straight bat. His engagement is rather straightforward in some ways. He talks of presenting to them his understanding of the gospel. In the message, it puts it like this. I placed before them exactly what I was preaching. It's this as, it is as if he and the leaders that he is meeting are sat around a table and uh, he just sat across from each other, simply arranged his ideas on the table in front of them all, open dis to discussion and scrutiny. Initially, he does this in private. It's not an exercise in manipulating public opinion. It's, about, it's not about scoring points, but it's about honest engagement including an honest account of what others have and have not done. Playing with a straight bat also means being ready to stand firm on the issues that matter. In verse 5 it says this, We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now those of you who may sit round... Uh, in business meetings, at work, or any other places, to be fair, I've heard this so often. I've often heard this phrase, with all due respect. Now, unfortunately, certainly in business meetings that I've been involved in, often the subtext is not due respect. It's, you're wrong, and I don't respect your opinion. Here, however, we find that Paul is really paying respect to those around him. Three times Paul says, uh, describes them as those esteemed as leaders, people held in high esteem, esteemed as pillars in the church. Commentators broadly in opinion that Paul isn't being sarcastic here or anything, he's giving genuine credit. And this supports the case that he's making to the Galatians. Those are standing in the early Christian community support Paul's ministry and agree with his understanding. It says there, they added nothing to my message. It could also be argued that, that Paul's respect, particularly for Peter, is sort of referred to in his switch. He, to start with in the passage, he calls him Peter. Then later on, he suddenly changes to calling him Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic word that Jesus used when he renamed Peter, when he called him the rock. Paul recognizes the importance of the person who's potentially his greatest rival and emphasizes the parallels between Paul's ministry to the Gentiles and Peter's to the Jews. He doesn't try to make his case look good by making others look bad. He doesn't try to make himself look taller by making others look smaller. 
It's often been said that humility is standing at our full height next to God at his full height. And that means standing next to others at their full height. When you're in a situation of conflict, are you ready to give due credit to your, whether they're actual or perceived, opponents? Paul is clear that this is not about fawning to people. God doesn't pick and choose favorites. But it means being as open about the value of other people's situations as you are about your own. Paul finishes this uh, section by agreeing on a central concern of the gospel, to remember the poor. Some have argued that this is about remembering the Jerusalem church, who are often known at that time as the poor. But concern of the, for the poor was a consistent feature of Paul's ministry, and it was in line with Jesus' own teaching. He who was rich for our sakes became poor. It is the poor in spirit who know, the need, know their need of God and are open to the grace of God in Jesus' preaching of his kingdom. As Christians, what should we be expending our energy on and our time on? Should it be on conflicts with others, whether that's fellow Christians, neighbours, work colleagues, family members? I would say that we should be concentrating on the poor whether it's poor physically or spiritually, on letting them know God's love, God's provision, and God's grace. So Paul offers these insights into resolving conflict. So far, so good. However, we take some of the Bible references out of that talk, and we could be talking about any old business uh, seminar. So perhaps the most fascinating thing about these insights is not so much what we ought to do, but concentrating on what God has done for us. What is different in the things that Paul talks about in the whole essence of his writing is that grace is running right through it. Many of you may have read Oswald Chambers' book, My Utmost for His Highest. I remember doing it in a home group before Ben was born, probably. Um, the grace you had yesterday, he says will not be sufficient for today. The grace you had yesterday will not be sufficient for today. And he goes on, grace is the overflowing favor of God, and you can always count on it being available to draw upon as often as is needed. In Corinthians, Paul talks about where our patience is tested, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses. That's where we need to be relying on the grace of God. There are times when we feel we're being pulled under, where we feel unable to cope with everything that's being thrown at us. Often those feelings can be a result of conflict in our lives, and they're the times when we need to receive God's grace. We've been learning, and we sang it at the start of this morning's service, before this morning's service, that Matt Redman song, Our scars are a sign of grace in our lives, and Father, how you brought us through, when deep were the wounds and dark was the night, the promise of your love you proved. In telling the story of how he came to write this song, Matt Redman explains that him and his wife Beth were writing about how the scars that we sometimes recognize in our lives are a mark of healing, a sign that we're not where we were 
Uh, any of you who may have read some of their, their story over the years will know that Matt and, Red, Matt and Beth Redman have been through very difficult times. But in explaining this song, they go on. Our wounds may have been deep and the night may have been dark, but, but the promise of God's love has been proved in our lives. When we look back, we see providence and protection, even the ways that God has made us fruitful in the land of our suffering. In the song then, he goes on to echo the refrain from uh, Horatio Spafford's hymn, which you all know, obviously. It is well, it is well with my soul. Despite conflicts, despite hardships, despite pain, if we rely on God's grace, we'll be able to join in that refrain and sing, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's exactly the place that Paul was coming from when he was dealing with conflict in this passage we heard from. That's the background to the points that we've been exploring this morning. And the thing that relying on God's grace brings is freedom. And it's while Paul is defending his preaching about freedom, about the freedom we have in Christ, that he's actually exercising that very same freedom. It's a freedom that we can only truly find through the grace of God. All too often, it's the things that imprison us which prevent us from doing what Paul does here. When it comes to dealing with conflict, we find that sometimes, trapped in our anxiety, we can rush in to set things right. Trapped in our insecurity, we can try sometimes to manipulate the truth. Trapped in our lack of self-esteem, we're tempted to belittle others. And trapped in our preoccupation with our own interests, we take our eye off the ball. For Paul, for Paul the good news about grace in Jesus frees us from all these fears, all these anxieties, all these insecurities. We can let go of our own limited perspectives as we've been called to a bigger vision of what it means to be whole in Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, that we might be free to proclaim the freedom we ourselves, to others, the freedom we ourselves have experienced. At the start, I quoted Justin Welby, who asked the question when helping to resolve conflict, what has this dispute done to your soul? Let us make sure that we are constantly relying on God's grace to free ourselves from the things that trap us and to be able to sing, it is well, it is well with my soul.